This presentation was given at the Monastic Conference on the Environment, Gethsemane 3. It was given by Reverend Hung Shur. The title of his talk, The Patimoka, Pratimoksha, Theravada, and the Ten Major and 48 Subsidiary Bodhisattva Precepts from the Net of Brahma Sutra, Mahayana. I think my talk has the longest title. <clears throat> How monastic rules speak of the world and our life in it, bringing new awareness to ancient yet living documents. That's only half. <laughs> the Patimoka, it's Pali language, that's the scriptural language of the Theravada, and the Pratimoksha code, Sanskrit, for the Mahayana. And the ten major and forty-eight minor bodhisattva precepts from the Brahmajala Sutra, the Mahayana Brahmajala Sutra, Netta Brahma Sutra. Now, folks who, um, oh, let's see. I wanted to, to just to give you a visual reference to my teacher in religion, um, the late Chan Master Shenhua, who uh, was certainly the source of my inspiration to become a monk. And. Uh, this may be a first. I think we're going to name Shitagarbha Bodhisattva as the default Mahayana patron state of ecology. Okay. Earth store, earth treasury, Shitagarbha Bodhisattva. All right. Um, start out with a quote from in the Pali Canon, the Buddha's third sutra called the Fire Sutra. This is a quote from the Buddha in which he says, Indeed, the entire world is burning. All things are burning. Monks slash nuns. And if I say monks, please know it is not gender specific in this talk. It is inclusive. The senses are on fire. And then he goes on to elucidate. The eyes, O oh monks, are on fire. The objects of sight are on fire. The eye consciousness is on fire. And he goes on to describe a very uh, afflicted state in the world. And I wanted to balance that awareness with the Buddha's antidote, which is indeed the precepts. This comes from the Avatamsaka, the Flower Dharma Sutra, where he says, what is the perfection of morality, the Shila Paramita? It is that precepts are able to eradicate the fires of all afflictions. The Chinese says, that's called the perfection of morality. So precepts are the antidote to the fire of the, the burning senses and the fires of the world. So that kind of gives us a sense of, from the Buddhist perspective, why a prescriptive morality. It is indeed to douse fires, to eradicate that burning affliction for oneself and for the world. And that's what leads into our topic today. Um, I was going to talk about the Buddha's monastic codes, and my talk is going to be followed by a sister Judah, Sutera, who's going to balance the Buddhist presentation with an introduction to the environmental view in the Rule of Benedict. And both of us, we compared notes yesterday, we both had the same experience, which is there isn't a whole lot of specific teachings on the environment. Now. Um, I think there are reasons for that. 
Let's look first of all at, at the word pratimoksha, patimoka. In the uh, the Chinese tradition calls it biejia, uh, special liberation. Um, I confirmed with Ajahn Sudanto last night that that is not mirrored in the Pali. So patimoka is somewhat mysterious uh, um, source of that word. And I'll just use the Mahayana, special liberation, liberation from the fires of afflictions. Um, certainly all Buddhist monastic traditions honor the Pratimoksha rules. Now, there are Buddhist traditions that are not specifically monastic, but they they certainly would uh, acknowledge and respect them. Um, in the Mahayana tradition, they say that the Bodhisattva precepts, the Brahma Jala Sutra, the Netta Brahma Sutra, came directly under the Bodhi tree, that when the Buddha opened his wisdom eyes using his global vision, his universal vision, this was what he taught first, was uh, that there are ways to end suffering, as we heard yesterday, and the Pratimoksha is the way. The Bhikshu and Bhikshuni Pratimoksha have an interesting provenance, which is to say the Buddha didn't speak them for a long time, but only as the monks and nuns went away, went astray, as they, as they uh, practiced behaviors that was leading away from liberation. The Buddha said, ah, bhikkhus. He said, after this, avoid this behavior because it will obstruct your path to liberation. So bit by bit, we, we got the 200 and... 27 Theravada rules, the 250 Mahayana rules, and then the 348 rules for the bhikshunis. So these are the various monastic codes, the monastic rules. And <coughs> when one ordains, traditionally you take the five lay precepts, the ten novice precepts, the Shramanera, Shramanerika precepts, and then after an appropriate amount of time, one takes the bhikshu and bhikshuni precepts. In the Mahayana tradition only, we take the bodhisattva precepts. So just to say that these two codes that I'm putting side by side are not honored universally across the Buddhist tradition. The Theravada monks don't take the bodhisattva precepts from the, Brahma, the Netta Brahma Sutra. So because my tradition is the Mahayana, I'm going to offer some insights from that rule at the same time. Um, now, as I said, Sister Judith and I looked into the rules and didn't find specific mentions of the environment. And why would this be? Possibly that our tradition, in the Buddhist tradition, with its 2,550-year-old history, um, was rooted in a very different view of the world than we have now in the 21st century. Perhaps... Um, the Sangha community for whom these rules were spoken was so immersed in the environment that it didn't require a special name. It didn't have to be uh, pointed out. It was a given, the fact that we live as one with our natural surroundings. That may be a reason for it. Um, now, I should say at the start that the comments that I'm going to give today uh, had the benefit of a lot of previous thinking on Buddhism and ecology. For example, we heard yesterday uh, Stephanie mentioned uh, some of the, the books that she has edited, Dharma Rain being one that I found very useful. Uh, so there are a number of edited volumes of essays on Buddhism and ecology. Uh, 
The Dharma Rain, for example, is a comprehensive perspective gathered from samples of Theravada Mahayana and Tibetan Mahayana sources. Um, many of the writers in those texts pointed to the absence of any specific teachings matching what we would call ecology now or environmental concerns. So in order to address the concerns and criteria of the 21st century's environmental movement and the topic of our conference, we have to glean from the Buddha's words in the sutras and in the Vinaya bits and pieces and extrapolate from the Buddha's holistic view responses to our contemporary concerns in the context of a fractured environment, a fragmented uh, globe guided by global markets and their values. I think more interesting for us today is that we can also draw from the practices of monastics, Catholic and Buddhist alike, to glean the real value and the actual enduring monastic view on the environment. So I'm going to do that in my talk. Talk about how those precepts are, how they serve as an interface to, to our lives in the world, engaged in the environment. Um, so we have to read the text and frame our daily practices as if the Buddha were an environmentalist, concerned with preserving habitat, saving species from extinction, limiting population, coping with toxic air, dwindling water, arid land, melting ice, deadly unseasonal storms, and more importantly, a pervasive climate of corporate greed, industrialized humanity, polarized between morbid obesity and grinding scarcity. Our sources are theoretical. The models of the Arhat and the Bodhisattva as well as practical, the guidelines of the precepts and deportment in daily use by monastics from the earliest days of the Sangha to the present are still with us. So it's not the case that we don't have sources. I think we just have to hold them up in, uh, through, in, the, in the view of environmental concerns to get value today. So as we work with the Pratimokshas, we have to construct an environmental model from the various precepts that came down to us in my tradition, the Dharmagupta Vinaya, in the Theravada tradition, the Pali Vinaya, in the Tibetan tradition. Um, and I will offer some selections from those codes and also juxtapose them to the practices. Um, I mentioned that the Theravada tradition does not affirm the Net Abrahma Sutra that contains the Bodhisattva Pratimoksha. Um, in fact, their Pali Canon has a different text with the same name, the Brahmajala Sutra. There are some scholars who criticize the Net of Brahma Sutra as apocryphal, which may be of some interest to scholars, perhaps not. Um, that current line of thinking is, is valuable for maybe for a scholastic discussion, but it doesn't dissuade the current Mahayana Sangha from reciting it faithfully as their ancestors have done for the last thousand years. Um, so let's move on. The Pratimoksha expands on the five lay precepts, which restrain behaviors of killing, stealing, sexual misconduct, false speech, and intoxicants. This is indeed the basis, the basic five lay precepts that are mirrored throughout the other monastic codes. And right away, uh, you can see that these will have impact on your behavior in the environment. Um, let's look in particular at number one, number two, number three, and number four, and put those 
next to the Decalogue, the Holy Quran, and Patanjali's Yoga Aphorisms. And we find those four major precepts mirrored, one for one, in the Ten Commandments, interestingly enough. Um, so the comments that I'm making today, although I'm mirroring it from the Buddhist perspective, we're going to hear from the Rule of Benedict, I think uh, are, I would rather talk about it as monastic precepts than specifically Buddhist, because I think the overlap is striking and useful. In both Pratimoksha rules, the, the Bhikshu and the Bodhisattva, precepts function as an interface. They're tools. They're guidelines between the monastic's resolve to live the holy life, in some cases to withdraw from the world, in some cases to transcend the world, in some cases if you make the Bodhi resolve to enter the world in order to cross living beings over, and the situations that he or she will encounter both in the inner worlds and outer worlds. So those precepts allow you to do both, to engage without leaving the path. That's their real function. And I think if we extract that from both rules, I think that's not going to be too far astray. Monastic rules specify an interface for skillful living on the planet. How to live skillfully. Monks and nuns practice harmless, compassionate engagement using virtuous behavior and wisdom's expedient means. Father William last night mentioned the emphasis on upaya, expedient means, as something that he found uh, not at all different in the two traditions. So this is what I've abstracted, extracted from the Vinaya. You know, mind you, I'm not going to go specifically into the codes. So I hope people at the end say, you know, you really didn't talk about the Pratyamoksha very much. You know, uh, in fact, uh, what I think is more useful is to say that both rules function in this way. Living within the code honors these views, and I found these uh, repeated over and over in the essays that were collected into Dharma Rain. The notion that one who follows a monastic rule lives simply and without greed. And that, I think, will be probably what I emphasize the most today. That the rule, the monastic rule, celebrates human life without honoring greed. And in our culture that the monastics are set in, this is rare. We live in a world where more is good and new is best. There's no doubt about that. A monastic say, no, there is an alternate way. There's an alternative that sustains and that survives and thrives at this time in the world. Now, also very, very important is the emphasis on ahimsa. Ahimsa, Sanskrit, not harming. The fact that living blamelessly is also emphasized in the Theravada tradition. The idea that there is a way to live skillfully that is not at someone else's expense. How important that is, or some other creature's expense. This is a hallmark of the monastic codes. A third is interdependence. And uh, this will be emphasized graphically in a minute. 
Um, the fourth is living as if the spirit was as important, if not more important, than the material. Not to denigrate the material. We live in a material world, but spiritual values are a priority. The fact that the Pradimoksha rules over and over take into account ancestors, ghosts, patriarchs, the, uh, the feelings of the laity who are, uh, whom the monastics serve. And then, this is an awful word, but I thought this was, maybe we can work with this one. Non-anthropocentricity. Live, the, the codes stitch humanity back into the fabric instead of letting humanity bloat and become the only species that, that it, that the only species that has become a force of nature in itself. So these are the themes that I'm going to, these are the things that came to my mind as I looked at the Pratimoksha and the, of, of the bhikshus and the bodhisattvas. Let's look at middle way moderation, that is to say, not greed. Living simply, living sufficiently. Um, scarcity, it's important to, I think, to point out that monastics living the middle way are not pushed around by scarcity. It's not that we're fighting for our slice of the pie. It's that the idea that if you live mindfully, if you avoid extremes and live in moderation, there is plenty. There is plenty. Living simply. Contentment without greed is a hallmark of monastic codes. And I want us to say that strongly I want it to be made visible because I think my, my sense is that all the indications say that the dollar is going to tank soon. I was in India in September and they didn't want my dollars. They wanted rupees. Hmm. <laughs> Holland in Amsterdam now. Uh, the euros are number one requested currency, not the dollar. Hmm. Interesting. So... The, the idea that somehow monastics, um, by living simply, live in pain and that reducing greed is somehow un-American, I think as it, whether we like it or not, we're going to have to find an alternative mode for our culture. The monastic model works and has been around for so long, but it's essentially invisible because we have the stigma of somehow being, oh, you know, making do with less is, it hurts the spirit. It's exactly the opposite. The spirit thrives when we know sufficiency, plenty. The monastic rules name greed a poison. The Buddha calls it the three poisons, greed, anger, delusion, or stupidity. Of the 10 evil deeds, that there are three in the mind. Greed is number one. Now, how strong can you say it? A poison, that greed poisons the mind. It, it obstructs our view of the way things are. When you take poison, you're sick. Greed has poisoned us into thinking that somehow that more is best. Monastics, not only in our rule, do not honor greed. We recognize that we're aware of greed, but we don't 
place it as a guiding light, as a motive, and instead we thrive. The middle way is certainly key in everything the Buddha taught. And I find that true in the rule of St. Benedict as well. And I think to bring this forward is a blessing for our culture at this time. I think it's going to be a very attractive alternative when peak oil no longer fills the Safeways with food because the trucks don't roll. Once the trucks don't roll, fragile highways, superhighways, freeways are a very fragile ecosystem. It takes one big rig, jackknifed on an exit, to shut the exit. Nothing moves. As soon as you don't have the trucks rolling to pull the weeds, the, cra- the weeds come right up through the cracks in the superhighway. It shuts down. It becomes a long playground for shuffleboard and for <laughs> jogging and, you know. So... Moderation, knowing when to stop. Buddha said, contentment with fewness of desires, practicing generosity instead. Different than frugality or scarcity or simplicity. Contentment, moderation. The Buddha said, if you can be content, you'll always be happy. If you can be patient, your heart will know peace. Zhizu Changle, Nengren An. Knowing sufficiency, always happy, able to bear of yourself at peace. Zhizu, knowing sufficiency, constantly happy, able to bear. This is a knife over the heart, the word for patience. Patience is just like having a knife over your heart. You don't want to move, you just, you know, (laughs) wait able to endure of yourself peaceful, inherently, implicitly peaceful, intrinsically peaceful. I think this is a monastic virtue that we exemplify every meal, every day. And to make that visible, I think is going to be very important contribution that monastics will have to make to the culture at large once we have to change. People tend to react instead of uh, prepare. Monastics have been living skillfully without honoring greed. Less material is more spirit, more nourishment, more joy, more satisfaction, because service to spirit, not to self, is celebrated in the monastic environment, in the rule. I think we need to preserve this culture for humanity. And that's, I think, the larger gift of our conference. Number two, ahimsa, harmlessness. We had a conversation the other night, and Ron uh, Epstein was mentioning that uh, um, the environmental movement easily overlooks this, as is currently constituted, that a commitment to non-harm, to living blamelessly, is enabled, is, is ennobling and important. And this, I think, is Im- embedded in the, pr- the Pratimoksha Code. Okay. The third is interdependence, and I wanted to, um, let's see here, I've got another document here. Um, Here we are. Um, We've heard of Indra's net. 
it appears actually nowhere in the sutra, the Avatamsaka Sutra, interestingly enough. It's, it appears in the, in the Shastra literature, in the commentaries. The contemplations of the Dharma realms, the ten Dharma realms of Indra's net, gives us an effective view of interdependence. It models a world set back on its foundations of pre-modern but globally connected values. I'll unpack that in a minute. I'd like to share this prayer that I wrote and recited in 2003 when the GTU, uh, the Graduate Theological Union, dedicated its new technology center. That's the seminary next to UC Berkeley. A prayer for appropriate technology, tools as if spirit mattered. Um, let's first invoke Indra's net, the interlacing net of pearls, which in the Buddhist pantheon is said to adorn the heavenly palace of Chakra Devanam Indra, Lord of the heaven of the 33 gods. The net contains an infinite number of perfect transparent pearls. Each pearl perfectly reflects the totality, the entire net. And if you go into each pearl, you see all of the pearls. And the entire network is gathered back into a single perfect pearl. May the electronic tools we use in the technology center reflect the totality of the spirit in the same way. May every microcircuit that sustains our cyber reality mirror the interdependence of the internet. May each node, module, each chip carry us faithfully into contact with the totality of the entire worldwide web of all living beings and all religions, mind you. May each monitor and tube reflect accurately, reliably, without bias, the data that can become information the information that can become knowledge, not necessarily, and the knowledge that can, with grace and compassion, become wisdom. May we stay mindful as we use our electronic shovels and digital chisels that the tools are means to an end, that wisdom and compassion are the ends of those means. May we use our virtual servants to clarify our human values and enhance our basic human kindness instead of leading us to serve the technology that too often is designed to serve marketing, marketing that is in turn the servant of greed and the bottom line. In this way, may we make each keystroke a blessing, each printout a prayer, each slideshow a sacrament for the earth and sky. Okay, that's the end of the, uh, the, end of the prayer. But I wanted to say, in terms of in the Pratimoksha, in the monastic rule, this, this vision, embedded, of, embedded vision of interdependence is very helpful for us. As we look at technology and how we follow technology, monasticism offers a potential systematic solution to a current crisis of human values in the high-tech world. Monasteries provide a perfect laboratory for judging appropriate technology use. Because why embedded in our rule is no greed, is simplicity, sufficiency, is the notion of spirituality as a priority. The fact that we are knit into a fabric of living beings. So monastics can advocate and demonstrate the use of these ethics, ancient wisdom tools, techni, tools we make technology, what people do, the tools that we use as technology. We can use ancient wisdom tools, compassion, 
wisdom, virtue, kindness, selflessness, to review appropriate technology and say, no, actually, we don't have to make it. We don't have to use it just because we made it. We don't have to make it just because we can. We don't have to buy it just because it's cool, which is what the marketplace tells us. It is too often the case now that if we can make a tool or a weapon, we will do so without reference to human values. So I'm suggesting that our monastic rules provide us with something that, that currently no one seems to be asking for, which is, what is, is it appropriate technology? Do we have a standard by which to judge whether we should go ahead, make, market, distribute, use these tools? So that's a contribution that's embedded in the rule. Monasticism suggests that humans have a duty as students, as stewards of the planet to think on behalf of all beings who share the natural environment as well as the unborn generations to come. In a world where the average child spends five times more accumulated time daily with computer, internet, television, cell phone, game console, and MP3 player than interacting with his human relationships, monasticism's rootedness in scripture its emphasis on virtue and compassion, on service to spiritual values, and ethical integrity can provide a model for reshaping our priorities as a society. Right? You're aware of that Harvard study. They traced uh, 6,000 families and averaged the amount of time the average child spent with his father. They, they traced them over two or three years. This was a Harvard uh, uh, social psychology. They discovered that how many, if on the average, what would you say? 6,000 families, three years, average amount of time of interaction between son and father or daughter and father. Any, any suggestions? Every day? What's the average? Per day. Per day. 10, minutes. 10 minutes. Anybody? Half hour. Five minutes. Going down. Five minutes. You ready? Now, this takes into account children without single-parent kids and also stay-home dads. You ready? 18 seconds. Got to go to work, honey. Love you. Bye. Out the door. 18 seconds on the average. Interaction between fathers and children. And... Let's see here. Computer, internet, TV, cell phone, game console, MP3 player. Digital readouts. Hours and hours and hours. So, monastics have a role to play in keeping alive these older visions that still work. Okay, now in terms of interdependence, there's a notion in... in the, the Pratimoksha that is called same body, great compassion. For all beings with whom I share an identical physical makeup and a single nature. Tongti, Dabe, here's another one of those. This is same body, great compassion. Tongti, Dabe. So it translates as same body. It means we share an identical physical makeup. That's what makes it Tongti. Earth, air, fire, and water 
make up the bodies and a single awakened nature is shared across. For example, specifics are the earth, bones, tendons, teeth, hair, nails, shared by all mammals, invertebrates, insects, same air, heart, lungs, arteries, mouth, shared across the board, fire, for humans 98.6, fish a little less, shared nonetheless, without it you die, same body, great compassion, and then the water that makes up blood, tears, saliva, excrement, etc., shared alike. So this is, from the Buddhist perspective, the way things really are. It's an actual uh, sameness. Now, to have a view like this reanimates nature. And I want to stress this and then pretty much be done here so Judith can speak. Um, the, uh, my tradition is the Mahayana. And we share this with our Thai forest tradition brothers in the Theravada, Oops. which is um, we're kind of high church Buddhists in a way. Um, when you come into the Berkeley Monastery where I live, there are lots of dragons all over in the iconography. And, and uh, the Protestant Buddhists tend to have a problem with that. The, those are the, the Zen folks and the, you know, the kind of, it's like, what are you doing with all these images everywhere? Um, and I want to make the point that um, the Buddha Dharma that came from Asia in the sutras and in the, in the Pratimoksha is a world full of dragons, ghosts, gods, tree spirits, chakrabartans, wheel-turning sage kings, and countless living beings. Worlds exist within worlds. Um, this connection with the, with the world of the spirit is mirrored by indigenous peoples around the world. Pre-modern peoples, earth-based peoples, people who call the earth Pachamama, who call the planet Gaia, the earth household, they find the world a miraculous place of wonder and of terror. Um, monastic communities, east and west, in their actual practices, I find, mirror more the pre-modern view of the world. Um, I think monasteries in their practice are much closer to the Pachamama view of Mother Earth. Um, humanity in this view is part of a larger web. We're knit into and extricably related to all other, inextricably related to all other species. Our role as humans is to stay humble and reverent, to not waste, to be grateful and wise in our sharing and stewardship of resources, and to show compassion to other neighboring species and tribes of creatures who inhabit the planet with us. The Buddha described the earth as a community to be lived in righteously and wisely, not as a commodity to be consumed and exploited by the strongest and the most ruthless. This is a pre-modern view. Um, I'm saying that to put these views into practice that we've outlined now, um, <coughs> reanimates nature. We move one step closer to the land that we usually, in our main, mainstream culture, only exploit. Um, this lesson is primary in understanding the monastic's potential 
for global healing. Um, Al Gore in Inconvenient Truth and his update on the TED.com website uh, says that the human potential for greed is the cause of our current critical situation on the planet with climate change. Um, the Buddha, in naming greed a poison of the mind, said essentially that destruction and the healing of the world is done in a single thought. The mind purged of greed is the road to awakening. The mind filled with greed poisons the universe and leads to indescribable suffering for all its inhabitants. Now, this notion of reanimating nature as part of our interdependent view is not a retreat to a mythical, pre-modern golden age of blissful ignorance. Indeed, it's not for one big reason, and that's this. Things changed. This is that famous photo, 1969, Earthrise, taken from the moon. Right? Once we saw that, things were different. We saw the limits. That's why it was special. We saw the finite quality of that. And notice around it what else there is close by. Not much. Lots of dark space. So once we've seen that, um, once we've seen pictures of Earthrise taken from an orbit from the, the surface of the moon. Hold on, where was I here? Here we are. Um, of our tiny blue marble of a planet with its precious finite oceans set in a vast black infinite universe. There's no turning back to an isolated tribal view of self-interest and struggle for survival. Rather, the Buddhas, and I would expand that to say the monastics, wisdom and compassion asks us to step up to a pre-modern awe and appreciation of the natural world with a global concern for all beings intact. A pre-modern wonder with a global ethic in view. A relatedness and a responsibility for the entire Earth community in our vision. Okay, let's move on here and finish up. Um, monastics live a pre-modern lifestyle with a post-global ethical connection to the earth and all living beings. This is really significant. And I think we need to celebrate this and say it loudly. I think there's healing here. Uh, spiritual values, let's see, we've already made that point. Monastic practices model spiritually awakened, connected lives. Here's what we do at lunch in the Theravada. Before you eat, say, wisely reflecting, I use alms food, not for fun, not for pleasure, not for fattening, not for beautification, but only for maintenance and nourishment of the body, for keeping it healthy, for helping with the holy life. Thinking thus, I will allay hunger without overeating so I can continue to live blamelessly and at ease. How graceful. The Mahayana version of the same thing. This offering of the faithful is the fruit of work and care. I reflect upon my conduct. Have I truly earned my share? Of the poisons in the mind, the most destructive one is greed. As a medicine cures illness, I take only what I need to sustain my cultivation and to realize the way. So we contemplate with gratitude on this offering today. 
Now, here's an example. This is just one. This is not taken specifically from the Pratimoksha Sutra, but it's inherent. It's built into the, the deportment, the ways of going through the day gracefully, skillfully. The notion is that every day, this might sound gross, we make our most intimate contact with the environment through our tongue. We embody the planet through the food that goes into our system, through, through our mouths. So to be able to eat with this in mind, that we're mendicants, the food came from others' goodwill offerings. That's how our lives are sustained. We reflect, what did I do to earn that today? Did I do anything meritorious in order to repay the kindness of the offering? Then of the poison in the mind, the most destructive is greed. So I want to eat without the seasoning of, of poison on my food. Eat it as not for fattening, not for fun, for beautification, but for helping with the holy life. As a medicine cures illness, I take only what I need. The food is medicine to cure the illness of starvation, to sustain my cultivation and to realize the way. Ultimately, we eat to wake up, to become wise and compassionate. So we contemplate with gratitude in this offering today. So this is a practice that um, I think is, is, is a very good sample of the kind of things that the monastic community, not to say Buddhist, not to say Catholic, but monastics, can offer to folks who are going to have to radically change their views very soon if the indications are, 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 so, are going to come true. So let's see. I think that's it. Oh, no, there's a little more here. Let's see here. Uh, all right. So I wanted to encourage. We're in the process of uh, working on some sort of a statement uh, of whatever that might be that comes out of our conference. And I thought, how lovely if the monastics could step into something that we already do now, but do it more consciously, which is share our stories, keeping the knowledge that we have alive. What kind of stories am I talking about? For example, scripture, ways to live that have been honored by Benedict, for example, and then the Gospels. Keep those examples in front of us. They matter. Two, stories that inspire clear seeing, seeing the bigger connection, not just uh, the temporary profit of the bottom line. Methods of practice that dignify the spirit. We just heard two meal contemplations, for example. Prayers that invoke blessings. Not exactly stories, another use of language, but something that the monastic communities are absolutely rich in and that people turn to, to religious for. So if we own those, if we publish them, put them on a website, put them on a podcast, put them in a manga, in a cartoon book, with an illustrated book so that people have access to what we are so rich in. Methods that show simplicities, righteousness, and rewards. So, storytellers, gospel speakers, precept holders, um, I have a story. I did a pilgrimage at one point in my early formation as a monk. And uh, I was silent during, for six years during that time. I had a vow of silence. And I was with another monk who, uh, who did the talking. 
And we were in Santa Barbara, passing, we're bowing, doing a full prostration every three steps up the Pacific Coast Highway. And we got to Santa Barbara, and there was this fellow with long, braided black hair and a black fedora with a feather, with a feather in it, who was kind of standing behind a tree. And you kind of look at him, and you wouldn't see him, and then, then he'd be there. And then we noticed he bowed all morning, and this guy was just kind of at the periphery, and you wouldn't see him, and then he was there. And uh, at the end of the bowing day, he was there again. And he came up and he said, uh, he said excuse me. He says, uh, I just wanted to say something. He said, uh, my teacher is a medicine man for the Red Bud Sioux. And he said, he, he wanted me to tell you that you guys are neat. He said, what do I mean by that? He says, neat. When you're neat, you slip right through. No blame. He says, you disappear. He says, you guys are neat. I just wanted to tell you that. <laughs> oh, Thank you. Okay. Well, here are some guys who are neat. Slipping right through. Following those codes. Living blamelessly. Right? This is the uh, planning committee for the monks in the West. There's many familiar faces who are in the room with us today. Some who are not. But, um, right? Recognize those. Here's another group of neat folks. Gethsemane too. This is the model for our photograph, Father William. So, although it's not green. Okay, I'm suggesting that monastics have a big job to play. As the culture changes, as we're forced by the falling dollar and having no food in the Safeway, I think if we only raise up some of the monastic practices, Buddhist and Catholic alike, I think we have a huge gift to make. So, thank you very much.